Pour voir ta réalité, ton destin déjà tracé, tu continues à se garer. C'est clair, t'as perdu la raison. Times are changing and nobody's making the moves to improve, cause we can't see what's coming so near me. Oh, so Pompeii, let's say so long.
Welcome to the Truth to Power Show and Ready for Brooklyn. I'm your host, VGR Nathan. And with us today is uh, co-host Jessica Hines of Meditative Writing. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you. Okay. So um, today's guest, um, how are you doing? First of all, Jessica, how are you doing? Everything? I'm doing good. Um, good. I'm a little sleepy. Yeah. um, Because for me, it's, you know, like... (laughs) Feels like two in the morning right now. Uh, I usually like to sleep in a little bit, but I'm glad to be here and excited to talk artsy stuff. Great, great. So today's uh, guest is Enrique Flores Galvez, a native of Cuba, left Havana at age nine. His second book, 90 Miles to Havana, recounts the tumult of the revolution on leaving the island through Operation Pedro Pond. Um, an uh, artist, novelist, and teacher, Mr. Flores Galvez has exhibited his paintings in many solo shows in New York City galleries. Welcome, welcome, Enrique. Thank you. Thanks a lot. I love to be here. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. So why don't we start the conversation off with your second book, uh, Nine Miles to Havana, and tell us a little bit about what's it about and how do you, when did you write it and how the process and a little bit about the history? Yeah, sure. I, I wrote the book around 2010, and it was uh, many, many years after the, the event that uh, it, are highlighted in the book the leaving of Cuba in 1961. And uh, it came a point where I had kids that were just about at the same age as I was when we left. And uh, I thought that they should actually have an idea what uh, their parents, or their father had gone through. And um, so I started to research the whole idea of Operation Pedro Pan and what it was. And I realized that it was very, uh, very, uh, very few people knew about it. And it was within, it was a kind of a landmark operation Within 22 months, uh, there were 14,000 unaccompanied minors left Cuba en masse and landed in the United States in uh, refugee camps and uh, the um, uh, other auspices of the Catholic Church. And where we were from there, we were uh, we were foster parented out uh, all around the country. And uh, I just uh, I had realized that I we my brothers and I we came together. Uh, there were uh, two and three years older than I, and uh, I was eight at the time. And um, um, I realized that we never really talked about it, never really discussed the whole idea of of leaving and being away from our parents for, for so long. And uh, so we started this dialogue, and I would call them up every night, and we'd sort of share memories, and we'd build on each other's memories. And until I had enough, then I started to write it. And so I wrote the book. Uh, really keeping my my children in mind just to try to give them an idea of what went on during that period. Mm-hmm. And what were some of the memories? Can you, can you share like one of them or one of the, the most key memory that you have? Any key memories? Yeah, the, I mean there were many key memories. I mean I had we had wonderful times in Cuba. My father was an architect and he was a young man and he was building a lot of buildings all over Havana. And I remember going with him to to watch him. Uh, orchestrate the whole building of a, of a large uh, office building that was that ended up being the the newspaper a building for the largest newspaper in Cuba a prensa libre and I remember watching him uh, as uh, all the trucks were pouring concrete and stuff I, I loved the idea of cement I was uh, liked it. it looked edible to me but uh um, I just just wonderful memories of riding horses on the hillsides and and sailing in boats and things like that. We just had an ideal childhood, so I was able to tell those stories to my kids and uh, and they they actually the whole book started with uh, nighttime bedtime stories where I told them about uh, 
my lifetime in Cuba and um, just all these experiences and uh, using these two characters, Enriquito and Ernestina, who were actually in the, in the first book. But, um, I mean, there were lots of stories. I mean, most of them are in, in the book um, that, that I wrote. Interesting, interesting. And uh, tell us a little bit about the creative process. Like, uh, we were talking a little bit about how decisions are made by the editor, uh, and we'll get a chance to listen a little yeah. bit to the maybe selections from, like, decisions to cut things and, and you know, a little bit of the yeah. background of that story. Yeah, well, as being a, a sort of a novice writer, I'm a painter, and uh, I, I really started writing just to tell the stories that I knew. And um, and I've always been telling stories as, a, as an art teacher. I've thought about painting and painting history, and that, in essence, is sort of uh, telling stories about paintings, and paintings themselves tell stories uh, I had sort of a running start on the whole idea of, uh, of writing. But uh, one thing I realized was that um, it's a lot easier than I thought it was. I mean, it sounds it's kind of crazy to say that because it wasn't easy. But it's not the solitary, lonesome endeavor that I had imagined. Hmm. I, I, when I first thought of writing a book, I thought of the whole book, the front cover to the back cover the, and blurbs and everything. And I didn't realize that there's so much of it is a collaborative effort. Mm. So that once you finish your first manuscript, your rough draft, the editor has to look at it. And um, and if you've written, you know, that's when the, the fear of the editor's pencil starts up, okay. and I, which I was a virgin to uh, before that first book. But uh, they pretty much start to organize things in, in the way that they, they see their vision of the book, which I, I hadn't. As a painter, nobody's telling me what to paint or what colors to use or whatever. Uh, as a writer, I was sort of, a, it was in this collaborative effort, which in one way made it easier and another way made it more difficult. Yeah. Uh, so in the second book, I had, um, having grown up in the Cuban Revolution, I was born in 1952, the year that uh, Batista, uh, who was a presidential candidate, uh, saw his chances of winning were not, were slim to none. So he got in cahoots with the army, and they they orchestrated a military coup, put it, which put him in power. And he promptly canceled elections and canceled the constitution, and uh, and then that's when the real revolu- Cuban revolution started in '52. So all my life there was always a a conflict or something boiling over, threatening to boil over in the background, mm. which it did in 1959. Oh, good, good. You know, so so your first book. Um, uh, what was the name of it? Uh, Raining sardines. Raining sardines. Yeah. That had to do with the pre um, Cuban pre Cuban Revolution Cuba. Yeah. And then uh, you started to deal a little bit with um, the revolutionary Cuba, but then that ended up getting getting axed out of ninety miles from Cuba, right? And then yeah. Uh, but you end up adopting by adding it into uh, right. the later scene. Yeah. If you tell sure. Me. I think yeah. uh, one of the interesting things that I realized when we first came over here was that. Cuban kids, because of our upbringing, because of the the hotbed of politics and political ideas that we grew up in, uh, were more uh, sort of wise or attuned to politics than American kids. American kids were sort of blissfully watching Saturday mm. cartoons and mm. and just enjoying their life, thinking about Rice Krispies. And uh, but uh, in my book, I, I, I at the beginning of the book, the first the first draft. It was uh, it included a lot of uh, uh, vignettes of uh, things that I had seen and, and things that had occurred uh, growing up in within the revolution. And uh, so when I started to write the book, I, I like I said, I, I mined all these pleasant ideas, pleasant memories. Uh, 
But then as I kept thinking about it and my brothers and I kept discussing it, we started to come up with all these memories that were not as pleasant, you know, with like buses burning and, and people uh, demonstrating in the streets and things like that. And uh, so those were included in the first draft, but uh, the editor, to her, in her wisdom, um, thought that the book was about leaving, about being here, about what happens to a Cuban kid and his brothers when they arrive here, not really that much about the political conditions in, in Cuba mm. and uh, what they saw. So what I did was I took all those, some of those uh, elements and I worked them into, back into the book in the, in the form of uh, like a playground revolution. Mm. So when he arrives in the refugee camp, uh, instead of having spent uh, 80, 90 pages talking about the revolution in Cuba, I recreated a revolution in the refugee camp where a, a number of older kids and a bully uh, sort of take over the, the playground and try to tell everybody what to do. And there's a resistance movement and so on and so forth. So pretty much mirrors what what occurred in my child's mind was the pr- pr- progress of a, of a revolution. It's such a great example of, you know, what, what narrative, you know, is really meant to do. Like, you know, people, uh, we talk about this a lot in, in filmmaking, which is, you know, people don't go to the movies to get information. You mm. know what I mean? We right. go to, for story and right. being able to take some um, exposition, some information and weave it into the active story, I think, is such a beautiful way of finding right. a way to keep all of that information that you wanted, but to play it through the the actions of the the characters in the story. That's right. that's such a smart uh, move. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah, it was. It's a tricky thing. You don't want to be. I I want my my books not to be like eating broccoli, but I yeah. I do want them to have yeah. some little bits of, of like sort of sneaky information. Like in uh, Ninety Mile Savannah, there's a lot to be said about the Constitution, and there's a cook in the in the refugee camp who says uh, was always counseling the boys to do it. Um, or the, the resistant kids in the, in the camp to do it the, the democratic way, mm. which they, it, it sort of shows up that they don't really understand the democratic way. Because previous to the revolution in, uh, in Cuba, we had a very weak constitution. And instead of doing it through by the pen, usually anybody who had a, a, a serious objection would pick up a gun and uh, get into a, a Buick sedan and rush a police station. So it wasn't always done the, the legislative way mm-hmm. because of that weak constitution. And uh, how do you, how do you draw the parallels between the current situation with uh, uh, immigration and border crisis and all that? And how do you uh, what what kind of lessons do you think you're learning in regards to that, or, or perspectives you have on those yeah. issues, current issues? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, part of my uh, aha moments, one of the aha moments in writing the book is that. I finally started to realize or think about what my parents were thinking about or realizing what they were going through when they had to make this decision. And it wasn't a small decision. They were sending us to a foreign country mm. uh, with this vague idea of what was going to happen to us. Not, not a concrete kind of a fact about what an event was going to happen. But uh, So I'm realizing now that uh, in sending um, their kids to Central America, uh, it's a huge problem and it's a huge, uh, um, there's a, there's a huge reason for doing it. So, uh, uh, I've been doing a lot of research lately on Central America and I'm hoping to write a book on the immigration, uh, troubles there and sort of focus on the conditions and locally there 
and what it is that makes people need to to leave, need to come up here, to have no choice but to take this arduous uh, journey um, to come up to the United States. So um, in that sense, um, it's given me an insight into uh, into really what drives people to do these desperate means to uh, to, to arrive here, mm. and how much. Uh, as a Cuban, I'm very fortunate. We've always had a very kind of welcoming, uh, the U.S. government have always been welcoming to Cuban immigrants. Uh, for one reason or another, uh, we've always been given sort of a priority to, to come and to stay. Uh, it's possibly because Fidel Castro was a communist uh, leader and um, we, they were, he was our adversary, so it would look good for us to be coming here. But uh, whatever reason, we've always been very lucky to be able to be accepted, uh, unlike a lot of other people who are sort of uh, lately been being turned away, which is a sad thing because that's the, the major, one of the major um, uh, wonderful points about this country is the acceptance of, of the refugee or the person in need to, to be able to come here and refuge and have refuge. Mm, yeah. And also, uh, to go a little bit to your painting, um, uh, you you also teach painting. You're a painter. Right. Tell us a little bit about your creative process in that. And uh, yeah. Um. Well, it's, uh, I, I'm I've, I've been a sort of called a figurative or realist artist all, all my life. And uh, I uh, when I bought a house and I had kids, I had to find a way to make money so and be more constant about my income. So I became a portrait painter, and that required a, sort of a steady hand and uh, kind of a, a, a clear eye. And I did that for about 25 years and taught and, uh, and also did my own painting. But, uh, and, and, um, but I was, uh, in 2014, I was diagnosed with Parkinson's, and, uh, which sort of makes my body tremor a great deal and makes it a little difficult, a little bit more difficult to, to get that highlight into the eye just where it's supposed to go. And uh, so I, I decided not to frustrate myself, and uh, I started to paint more in a larger, broader-stroked, abstract expression this way they're still figurative they still have figures or things in them that you can recognize but um they're really more they speak more to the need to have bigger emotions uh, because as as the one of the symptoms of parkinson's is that it sort of it tends to close you in and if you don't watch out you can actually get sort of cupped into this kind of position uh that it that your your muscles and your whole uh your limbs sort of contract into themselves, and uh, so you have to do everything you can to open up and uh, do everything outward. So uh, I've, I've tried to do that with the painting gesture and also the color, which is like, uh, it's an amazing thing that it, what it does when you start to put colors in contrast, and it, it just affects your, your brain in, in a really positive way. But um, so that's, I mean, that's my, my painting practice right now is, is really working on a larger scale and larger, more broader vivid color did you when did you start painting uh, i started painting in uh 70 1970 about 75 um i was about 20 years old and i started sort of dabbling with it but then i i decided i wanted to be a painter and it's a funny story because my sister's an excellent artist and she's always better than me i thought you know <laughs> and uh it was a typical rivalry but uh I would do these drawings and show them to my mother, and my mother would say, oh, those are nice, but did you see what your sister did? <laughs> so after a while, I quit showing her the drawings and I stuffed them all under my bed. So when I left at home at 16 or 17, 
I called her up and said, if you want to see my drawings, you can look under the, the box spring. And she was able to see them. But uh, So then I decided to come to New York and study it full time. And I, I sort of, um, um, I was devoted to it. That's what I was going to do. And that's, that's what I did for, for all these years. Yeah. And how did uh, being an educator inform? You talked a little bit about learning to look and looking to learn, or yeah, uh, yeah. You talked a little bit. Yeah, about I, I found that um, as a painter, I've always, you know, if, of course, you go and see examples of uh, of work that you admire a great deal, to so that you can sort of glean something from it. And um, I found that I would, I'd, I'd be going all over the the country, all over the world, to go look at these paintings, but I walk away sort of feeling like I hadn't really gotten the gist of it. I really hadn't understood it, even though I'd studied everything I could about the painting. But then I, one day I, I approached the painting. Um, actually, I was with a, a, a Cuban buddy of mine who was an excellent painter, and he has a, a good way with words, and he would be using these words and vocabulary in reference to the painting, very specific, very kind of uh, of his own. And uh, I realized that... Um, if you approach a painting with a word or with a bias, instead of just standing there with your mouth open looking at this masterpiece, if you ask it a, a specific question like, what kind of space are you giving me? Is it a stuttered space? Is it a Renaissance space? Is it a theatrical space? Uh, is it overlapping? Is it uh, perspective, linear perspective? Once you start to ask it specific questions, it will answer you in this kind of magical way. So after this sort of epiphany, I started to develop a, a dictionary uh, that I used in this course that I taught for years called looking, Learning to Look and Looking to Learn, which uh, we, it was an ongoing process. It's still an ongoing process of developing vocabulary words to, to, uh, to interface with paintings. And I, it was just a magical moment. I mean, I literally go into the museum and have the, all these paintings sort of talking to me. It was just this transformation from day to night and, uh, it was it just it was a wonderful thing. It was a wonderful discovery. That's for me. that's so great because I one of the questions I wanted to ask you as someone who I've I've traveled around the world and I'm always <clears> going <throat> to museums and I'm always kind of walking through being like, you know, this isn't my format and I appreciate some things. And when I teach writing, um, you know, the number one thing that I teach my writers is replace judgment with curiosity. And I think for a lot of people with the fine arts we feel this need to like come up with a judgment about art or to be able to say something profound or, or like we know anything about it. And this idea of replacing that with curiosity and asking questions to create a better relationship with the art and to, to have a more profound experience. I hadn't thought about applying that yeah. to a painting. So that's, that's really a good point. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's, that's a really great point is that, um, I mean, no matter what it is, what it is that you're looking at, you're, you, your body, your brain are reacting in front of this, this creature, this thing that's hanging on the wall. And it's either whispering or screaming or doing whatever it's doing, but we're, it's our responsibility to try to listen to it and try to find out what we can from this, uh, from this magical thing. And it's a magical process. No matter how valuable the artwork is, no matter how valued and, and sort of selective the thing is, uh, it it pales in the complexity and the, the the beauty of the interaction of the human being standing in front of it. Mm. So um, I mean, when I go to museums, I spend a great deal of time looking at paintings, but I spend a lot of, a great deal of time looking at the at the at the spectators, mm. you know, at, and seeing how they stand and how they look. Uh, 
<laughs> I, I wrote a great big portion of um, both of my books at the Museum of Modern Art. And they used to have a mezzanine uh, bookstore up there. And then um, I got to know the people who worked in the bookstore, and they let me sit and write at this big table that they used to have that overlooked 53rd Street. And I would, I would work for a while, and then I would take a break and look at a painting. But most of the time I would look at people and see how they looked at the paintings. And um, it was interesting. It was an interesting kind of study um, just to sort of figure out how long they spent looking at the label then in comparison to how long they spent looking at the painting. Yeah. Which, uh, which is uh, usually it was on the positive side. No, yeah. it's the last museum I was actually at was at the Louvre in Paris um, oh, with my girlfriend and she'd never been. And so, of course, I was like, what do you want to see? And she's like, the Mona Lisa. And I'm like, okay, let's go see the Mona Lisa. Right. You know, and it's one of my favorite rooms because it's it, it, the, it's so much smaller than I think most people think the Mona Lisa is going to be. Right. I, you know, in my head when I first thought it, I thought it was like going to be like 20 feet high and it's quite small. And and I would just I sat there for like 20 minutes watching how like this, you know, everyone's packed in there staring at this small little painting and directly across from it is this massive gorgeous like what felt like a hundred feet high by a hundred feet wide beautiful painting and everyone's back was to it Mm. for this small little portrait Mm. and i just thought that was you know to me that was one of the most interesting things i saw on that trip was how the way that like just the the fact that it's known and even though i'm pretty sure that 90 percent of the people staring at that painting know nothing more than, oh, that's the painting that was behind Beyonce in that one picture. Oh. Mm. Um, and there's this mass, just really beautiful piece right behind it that I just sat and like was talking in my head to that piece because I was like, you're so beautiful. Oh, that's you're lovely. so wonderful. Yeah. You that's deserve lovely. all the attention. Yeah. I also want to bring up about, um, you know, a lot of people think about the creator's relationship with their work and the viewers or listeners or uh, readers relationship right. with their work. Um, where do you place the value in like, I think a lot of times people get obsessed with, it seems to me that you're shifting the, the emphasis to the viewer and listener right. and the appreciator, because that's really where the real magic happens because we don't really know once the creator creates it, they become a listener and viewer and, right. and how your relationship with your own work perhaps has changed as a viewer. Uh, anything like that you want right. to, yeah. How do you think feelings on that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, uh, with the books, I, um, uh... I have a wonderful, I've, I have ongoing wonderful experiences of being invited to go to schools and speak about uh, the history of Cuba and the book and get the reactions from the kids and when they read the book. And uh, that's a wonderful thing to me it's, it's to see what they actually pick up because you work, work, work and try to get make a point come across and all of a sudden you realize that they're, they're, they're really sort of digging into something else that you said the page before, but... Uh, it's it's a wonderful to see that experience as a painter, and I've I've seen the the most uh, relevant to that question is the uh, the reception or the uh, reaction to portraits, mm. and um, I've always felt that there are a few portrait painters who actually get it right. Some like really mess around with the paint, and they they really kind of are impressive, but there are just a few who actually get the the living presence to sort of, in some magical way, to come out of that that piece of cloth. It's like in a movie, sometimes you get that as far as the rendition of a character or in a book. But in painting, I think my, my ultimate uh, hero has always been Velazquez, uh, Diego Velazquez, a Spanish painter. 
um, who actually has got a beautiful portrait, the Juan de Pareja at the, at the, the modern at the Met, and uh, it's a portrait I've been looking at for for thirty years and going and visiting. Every time I go to the Met, I always stop at the uh, the Juan de Pareja first, and then I go from there on. So I could see the whole show. I've seen the whole museum in context of the Juan de Pareja, and uh, it's first of all, it's a wonderful portrait because. The essence of this man comes through, and it's uh, he is a portrait of it is a portrait of his studio assistant who uh, was uh, was born a slave, who uh, Velasquez freed, who himself wanted to be a painter, and in the portrait he stands there with his arm across his chest, and you can see that he's got a hole in his in the sleeve of his of his coat, and he's working sort of he's wearing sort of a, a working man's uh, uh, jacket. And around his neck, he's got this incredible collar, this incredible nobleman's collar, which it took me a long while to realize that that's a complete idiosyncratic. He was not supposed to be wearing a collar. He was the next slave. He was a Moor. And once I started to read more about the, the, the history of the making of that painting, I started to realize that, um, get a new sort of uh, uh, admiration for Velasquez as an independent thinker. thinker. Um, just a brief history that the painting was painted in Rome when and this, uh, Velasquez's second visit to Rome. And Velasquez was famous in Spain, in the court in Spain, but really nowhere else. And it took hundreds of years for him to be known and to sort of come out of the shadows because he only painted for the court and not so much for the uh, clergy and, and churches where the public could see it. But he was sent to Rome to collect art and by the king, and uh, and he was also to sort of make a name for himself. And uh, people were not responding to his work or responding to him. Nobody was sort of paying him any kind of lip service. So um, he painted this. He was painting portraits of the clergy while he was there, but he, then he painted this portrait of his assistant, which immediately had him, the assistant, Juan de Pareja, memorize his speech, and he would bring it, bring it to all the great studios of, in Rome and stand next to it and uh, and declare who he was and who the who his master was. And it made a big sensation in, in the city of Rome at the time, even got the, the Pope to allow for a sitting, a portrait sitting for Velasquez. But the idea of him painting uh, this Moorish ex-slave with a, a nobleman's collar which in the sumptuary laws of the court of that period very clearly uh, uh, delineated who was able to and who was not able to wear a collar of that kind. It was kind of a nervy thing to do and present it to the Pope, who was no fan of Moors or of, uh, at that period. So it was, it's an interesting history that keeps evolving. But uh, in the, at the core of it is this kind of incredible presence of this man Juan de Pareja standing there that comes across. It's one of the most, the primal examples of what a good portrait does, which is present a living uh, sort of a, a presence of someone uh, that that uh, appears to be there. And it's not, doesn't really have to do with how real it looks. It's, there's other qualities that are mysterious mm. and guidance. Interesting, interesting. So let me take a moment to listen a little bit to your, some writing. Samples, sure. uh, some samples of your writing. Why don't you set it up and then yeah. uh, read a little bit? Yeah, yeah this is uh, when I first, the first manuscript I wrote, uh, it started out with this kind of sketchy um, little introduction to the to the piece. 
And it was, uh, it's about our, um, it's, it's sort of self, self-explanatory. Uh, this was originally the first, uh, the first chapter, the first be- the beginning of the book. I dive in and swim along the sandy bottom to the blue shadow of the dock. I hook my foot under an abandoned anchor and let the current shape me. First I wave like seaweed. Then I gesture brittle like coral until the schools of tropical fish return. They flow around me like colored banners while curious angelfish pop the pearly bubbles of air clinging to my forehead. I like it down here because nothing ever changes. And when it does, I usually know the reason why. Not long ago, I could breathe underwater. But these days, the best I can do is hold my breath as long as I can. And with my lungs complaining, I rush to the surface, surrounded by a flock of silver bubbles, and then I swim back. The young soldiers are cursing the blazing sun as they dig long, deep holes into the white sand of my beach. I asked them why they're going to digging trenches, and they said, The Yankees are coming. They're going to invade any day now. I picture the baseball team walking out of the water in their pinstripe uniforms and blue batting helmets and laugh. But when the tanks came, I didn't laugh. That wasn't funny at all. They roared and clunked around the beach, raising clouds of sand and black exhaust, and then settled under the palm trees. At first we thought they would come and then go, but they never left. I could feel their guns pointing at me as I stare out at the delicate clouds rising from the tinkling blue, aqua blue sea. How could they even think about fighting a war here? I learned to swim and then walk on this beach. We used to come here almost every day. Our mothers talked and laughed while they fed us breezy lunches under these palms. But now the tanks own the shade, the mothers whisper, and worst of all, nobody laughs. I don't know why everything had to change so fast, but I think I know when it all started. I have a picture of that day, that sunny day when the edges started to darken. Soon the delicate clouds would gather, and then it would rain, and the soldiers will be glad. So that was the original beginning of the story. It's just uh, it's actual, it's a true story. We, they were um, before the Bay of Pigs invasion. Castro and well, his, his uh, government was uh, guessing as to where the invasion was going to happen, and uh, they were digging up all the beaches and planting defense positions and all over the place. And uh, it was just um, it's kind of an odd image. Um, to see your beach sort of dug up and have it be a prospective place for, for an invasion. So that's, that's what the piece was about. And I tried to write it in as simple, uh, like a, as innocent a voice as I possibly could. Mm, excellent, excellent. Thank yeah. you, thank you. Yeah, no, yeah. The, the, just the contrast of the contrast of like a, a place of play versus a place of war, I think was really <laughs> lovely and must have, to me, it feels like, like, you know, because I was wondering, I was like, wow, how does, how must, you know, around eight to 12 is where our unconscious beliefs begin to solidify in our, our personality and our psychology. Right. And so the idea that at that age to, 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 to move, you know, to, to be changed, have your, all of your surroundings change and to have those type of political things happening around you. I was just, you know, I was like, no wonder this person became an artist. Right. Uh, <laughs> How else yeah. do you process yeah. that? Right. That, you know, you, it it must be so ingrained in you. But I love that contrast of, you know, the innocent and um, and the violent and the, the play versus the war. Um, yeah. Really lovely. Yeah, excellent, excellent. And uh, one of the interests of yours, I understand, is uh, you're reading a book, The Origins of Consciousness, and how um, 
tell us a little bit about the thesis and how that's influenced or had an impact on you. Uh, yeah, that's the uh, Julian Jaynes book, the uh, the origins of consciousness and the breakdown of the bicameral mind, mm. and that's uh, really kind of an interesting book. I mean, it's a really interesting book. He, his theory is that man before uh, before three thousand BC, around one thousand BC, primitive or uh, pre, um, primitive man um, operated by a means of automatic habitual reactions to known stimuli. That is, uh, he reacted to things that he had already encountered before in, in a kind of habitual way. And when confronted by novel situations requiring a novel response, they would rely on, on the voice of an authority figure in the form of a, an auditory hallucination to guide them through it. So they were not, uh, at that point, sort of self-aware mm-hmm. man. And he's, he's used examples of writing and culture, cultural examples to point out this, this, this theory and um, so uh, it's something that changed as economic and cultural conditions changed. Language became visible as writing, and humanity developed a meta-consciousness, an awareness of our own consciousness. And, um, and that's when sort of a critical thought and kind of external, externalizing things uh, started to occur. But it interests me because as, as an artist, I mean, we're always talking about uh, inspiration, you know, and it's like sometimes when you write a poem or it's like somebody's telling you that putting the words together or putting them in your head or they just, we often will say that, I don't know where they came from. They just came. It's as if they come from outside of us. Mm. But in reality, they, they're cooking up in our in our brain and sort of being mingled and, and sort of uh, put together in time with real in sequence with some kind of a real life event happening to trigger it. But uh, we, as artists, we're sort of um, always sort of blaming inspiration as, as this external, you know, thing that uh, gets us going. And also in this in this kind of weird era that we're in right now, it struck me um, that um, there were certain, there were interviews with people who, who back our current president, who one of the things that they said was that he speaks for me. I hear his words in my head. It's like I've said them. And that scared the hell out of me when I heard that. And I thought, we're sort of regressing to this kind of pre-conscious level of, of following blindly authority, authority figures and uh, whatever ilk or whatever stripe they are, uh, which I think is dangerous. So uh, that just uh, brought out um, that idea. And, um, yeah, just the, 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 uh, the finding of that book was also very kind of... Uh, was, um, kind of a lucky thing, but I was at the museum uh, in Brooklyn and there was a show on David Bowie and they have a picture of his uh, traveling trunk. And I had been thinking about the book and somebody had mentioned it and, uh, and there in the traveling trunk among the six books that he likes to, that he always traveled with was mm-hmm. James, uh, Julian James book on consciousness. So I thought I got to get this. And, uh, but, um, uh, yeah, I was at a I was at a show and I met this uh, really interesting character who we were talking about a painting that I had done called uh, I, I See No Tiger. It was about as a large bush with a tiger embedded in the bush behind the bush, and uh, so he's the one that came up with the whole idea. This is by Cameron Mind, and um, and so I, we suggested I get the book. Excellent, excellent, and um, also I guess you're talking a little bit about. We were discussing a little bit prior to this about patriarchy and about how 
you know, a lot of times the traditional conventional thinking is that, you know, men are, you know, the ways in which men can benefit from the dismantling of the patriarchy and kind of, you know, and that men can benefit from, uh, you know, more egalitarian and more equality and more equity. Uh, talk a little bit about kind of your impressions from that or. Yeah, well, this is a sort of a layman's, you know, uh, yeah, outlook course, on it. Yeah. It's just sometimes I just, some things sort of hit you on the forehead and you go, wow, I, yeah. I didn't see this. But, um, I mean, it happens often, too often, that you have these school shootings and it's always a, a young male. And you yeah. have this, if you look at the crime statistics, it's all male and yeah. a very, very little female violent crime. And, uh, and then I realized it hit me. It wasn't a humankind. It wasn't a humanity problem. It wasn't a, a mankind problem. It was a man-gender problem yeah. that somehow we have to address, and we, we're just not. I don't see anybody really talking about it. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, we would benefit greatly. I, I've grown up, I've always grown up around very powerful and very, you know, very uh, accomplished women. And my mother, my grandmother, and my my wife and my daughters are people I admire great greatly, and uh, I wouldn't be afraid to have them, you know, uh, take over the, the yeah. ruling thing. They, they yeah. might do a better job. Yeah. But I think if you look at history, you can't. You have to look at it. If you look at it in a gender kind of uh, bias, it's like, what have we been doing? What's wrong with men? What's wrong yeah. with our young boys? What's wrong with how? What's wrong with the way that we're raising them? Yeah. So as a writer, I've been trying to itching away at it and trying to figure out a way that I can write in a positive way yeah. to enable and to acknowledge uh, young men and sort of steer them away from this violent kind of like interaction with, with the world. And the internalization of that um, patriarchal notions, the internalization for men, I think they, they kind of grow up in that toxic, toxicity of what is, you know, toxic masculinity or toxicity of masculinity that some certain types of masculinity bring. And the importance of kind of breaking that pattern and accepting or, or being more open to femininity and, and being more open to and, and, and disrupting all the binary, just expressing right. oneself in a, a healthy and, and open way. Right. You know, yeah. yeah. I, I think, yeah. yeah. I think some of the belligerent kind of reactions that we've been seeing lately in the media and just in, in manifested is really kind of a reaction to it. It's a, it's a positive thing, I think. It's a, it's a reaction to the natural, gradual course of things, the way they're moving. And I think they're moving in the right direction, but it's just we have to overcome these kind of little glitches that we have. It's definitely a, a human, mm. you know, it, it, I mean, the toxic masculinity and the patriarchy is something that has a negative effect right now on everyone, you know, no matter what gender or anything. Mm. Um, and so much of it is this... You know, I, I do prefer to talk about it outside of the the gender binary, but the idea that for a very long time, a lot of, you know, the people of this world were taught that vulnerability is weakness. And, you know, I know I have a lot of friends that grew up being taught that um, the only emotion that was appropriate for them to display in public was anger. Mm. And when the only, when you're feeling tons of complicated emotions, but you've been told that it's wrong to feel them, your body will go to the emotion that it feels says, says okay, this one's safe. And I think that so for a lot of men um, expressing their anger and, and all like it's not really anger. Anger is a surface emotion. It's a secondary emotion that usually grows out of fear or or something else. And so I do think that, you know, a lot of times we see more, you know, these violent acts, especially larger ones 
coming out in a way because you have this group of people who on one level have been told that they have access, that they have power, and yet for some reason feel that they don't have it for one reason or another because of their image or their their status. And then they're having all these complicated emotions that you know, then they are in their culture are told they're not allowed, they're not supposed to be feeling or they're not allowed to feel. And so then it comes out in anger. And and I think that, you know, a lot of that just also has to do with everyone being a little bit more mindful of emotional intelligence and knowing that, you know, vulnerability is actually, you know, power because, yeah. you know, to, to, to make your, you know, walking into a battlefield with no armor is much more a sign of strength than walking into a battlefield completely head right. to toe in chain mail. Yeah. Right. Yeah, definitely. I think that we understand that people seem to think in terms of like uh, power being about uh, making things happen, being the doer, being the maker, but be participating in the process, allowing the process to unfold. And just like in a, a, a boat on a, on a water, you wouldn't, you know, the, the, the ocean is the one that has the power and you're just kind of steering <laughs> Doing right. less less yeah. amount of work than you would, you know, uh, then you you know you're gonna have to overcorrect. You have to allow the usually the currents to, right? Um, yeah, to direct you. Yeah, yeah. the The idea of being a a a birther rather than a builder is mm. what I say usually as create right. as creativity. I find you know I was like, yeah, men men build a lot more things yeah. because women birth more things. It's just a yeah. little bit more natural with the right. anatomy. Yeah. Um, but learning to do both and 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 I think it's important for women to learn to to build more and men to learn to, oh, yeah, to birth exactly. more. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking that too. Like a lot of times in the, in the history of courses in the history of classes, I've been at structured education. It seems like the men are always the one who are you know, raising their hand and women in the general, they tend to be a little bit more, you know, generally speaking, but they tend to be a little bit more shy to speak in class. I think it's also because socialization is about, you know, kind of and a lot of times this comes up in college, especially this the professor will be like, you know, if you're the one who's always raising your hand, it's always talking, you know, learn to take a step back and allow other people to speak, you know, and and if you're the ones who's a little quiet, then allow yourself to speak up. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of because it's a learned behavior with with a lot of women I know and and uh, it's true that, uh, you know, you raise your hand enough times and you don't get called on or you yeah. just get interrupted or your ideas mm. get, you know, as someone who's worked in like marketing and I've run a few companies and I've had some partners where it's just true. You get exhausted with being like every time I present an idea, it gets shot down. And then six months later, my business partner who is male would bring it up yeah. and then we would do it. And I, you know, <laughs> eventually you're just like, this feels like, you know, it, it gets exhausting after a while. And so I think recognizing that and if you, you know, if I think especially in the classroom, it is absolutely the teacher's responsibility to monitor, to monitor and adjust their unconscious biases. Though, So when I teach, you know, I know that I know that consciously I'm not X, Y and Z, but I know that there's generalized unconscious biases against certain sexes or races or genders. And so I make sure that, you know, I consciously bring myself aware of that so that um, because you can undo those unconscious biases in short term so like let's say you have a classroom um, and you're teaching science and you know that there's an unconscious bias against women in science so the best thing you can do is right before you go in to teach that class is to educate yourself on some of the best the the most well-known or unwell-known female scientists and leaders in that field. Mm. And just by studying those right before you go into that class, you're going to be less likely to unconsciously call on the men uh, mm. more than the right. women. And it takes a certain amount yeah. of mindfulness um, to know that like, 
it's okay that you're, you know, like no one's blaming you for being unconsciously biased. That's a product of our culture and, and our news. And that's going to take many more generations for us to change. But you absolutely in a moment, if you know you're going into an environment where you're going to be interacting with people who are marginalized, mm. then you absolutely can take that action and Google and and just do a little bit of research so that, um, you know, you're not continuing right. with that behavior. Mm. That's how mm. we create communities. That's how we build communities. That's how we strengthen communities is by that mindfulness, I think. You know? Right. Yeah. Right. So good, good. So um, let me just quickly do a couple of shout outs for the um, Radio Free Brooklyn. You're listening to Radio Free Brooklyn, Truth to Power Show. Uh, Radio Free Brooklyn is a 501c3 nonprofit organization whose mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, and free expression. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. So to help support our mission, we invite you to make a one-time donation or monthly pledge at radioforbrooklyn.org slash donate. Every cent helps us continue to stay on air. So please support independent community media by pledging whatever you can afford. All countries are tax deductible to the full extent of the law. Um, if you'd like to go to radioforbrooklyn.org slash truth to power and sponsor this particular show or any of our sister shows, uh, please go to radioforbrooklyn.org slash truth to power. And there's a little link there um, to sponsor this show since we have uh, dues that uh, that will help subsidize the show. Uh, Radio for Brooklyn um, is proud to announce that it has been launching an after school program. For local teens in 2019. Um, so go to slash after school and remember that all donations, or if you're interested in participating or, or, or contributing in some way, uh, please go to slash after school. Um, slash iPhone and Android will allow you access to the apps. So if you're listening on a computer, free yourself up with uh, the apps available on iPhone and Android. And finally, uh, to find out more information about news and, and special offers, please go to radioforbrooklyn.org slash newsletter and sign up for our newsletter. Um, before we go out, I just want to say that the opening song was from um, uh, Two Birds Band, uh, number two Birds Band, um, when you're looking up on Apple Music or anything like that. Um, and that we listened to Pompeii uh, on their album String Groover. And going out, we'll listen to uh, The Joker um, and their song uh, on the string groover, The Joker. Um, but first, I was going to give last comments or thoughts uh, from Enrique or Jess. Yeah, I have a short poem that I, if I could okay, read yeah, it, yeah, it's yeah, just sure. short. And this is uh, my impression of Havana. When I first went there in 1997, right after the, the special period, Havana was going to strip dry and clean. Havana, Atlanta, sweet Havana, brittle honeycomb. Paper thin walking bones, all that remains in this sinking reliquary are your hushed amber memories of honey flesh and the ghost. With the satchels of sighs, they brush my cheek as they whisper by to scribble over thresholds, stuttered monologues that rustle the veils, and the walls speak of chance encounters and sudden rains, a fist in the pocket, cloud of cologne, dropped coins, and youth in the gutter. The broken hearted pray for redemption, but they'll settle for revenge. Luminous confection in this carnival of dust. Excellent, excellent. Thank beautiful. you. Thank beautiful, you. beautiful. Um, yeah, and if anyone, uh, if anyone wants to do some writing, some meditative writing, uh, I've got a workshop starting on the twentieth. So you can go to meditativewriting.org. and if you mention Truth to Power, um, you'll get some free goodies and a little one-on-one um, as a thank you for listening to the show. Um, yeah, that's all excellent. for me. Excellent. Thank you so yeah. much.
You're listening to The Joker by uh, Tuber's band. Thank you. Thank you. 